if you were a kid in the 90s, then you, you probably remember watching some nature documentaries on uh, public television. I remember uh, always enjoying watching uh, big game hunts uh, and documentaries. Not, not uh, people who would go hunt big game, but big game that would hunt other smaller game. And these uh, uh, nature documentaries would, would show it, you know, and the guy with the Australian accent would talk about the lion, you know, that's uh, chasing the pack of wildebeest and so forth. And uh, one of the things I enjoyed watching was how those lions would take down their prey. Now, they weren't always successful. Sometimes the wildebeest would stay in the herd and the lions would, would not be able to get something and they'd, they'd run away frustrated. But what I noticed is that the, the lions that were successful in taking down a wildebeest is that they would look for an alone animal. An alone animal is a vulnerable animal. Uh, if you can get a wildebeest as a straggler or a loner, then a lion can, can take it down. It's much easier to devour uh, if you can target a straggler or a loner. Now, as you see that picture that was just there, I want you to think about 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 that says, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. You see, the strategy of the lion in Africa is the same strategy that Satan employs against each and every follower of Jesus. Satan loves to target stragglers. He loves to target loners. If he can get you alone, then you are vulnerable to attack. You, you should write this down, that isolation is an Achilles heel for the believer. Being alone means that you are vulnerable to attack. That's why an alone person in the church is an emergency. We are here together. And everything in our culture says that you don't need other people. In fact, we kind of were all retrained during COVID to learn how to exist on our own, to be alone. We learned how to not go to the office. We learned how to not go to school. We learned how to not gather uh, with other believers. We learned how to exist in our house by ourselves to connect digitally. And some people, here we are three years later, some people have continued to live in that isolated pattern. What I want you to know is that, that Satan targets alone people. And aloneness equals vulnerability. When you come to Genesis chapter two, God has created a world. <clears throat> he has populated it. Uh, he has brought everything that is needed for, for us to live and enjoy the world he's made. And in chapter one of Genesis, you see the repetition of this phrase, God saw that it was good. He repeats it six times. After every day of creation, God saw that it was good. And then after the seventh day of creation, it was very good indeed, the Bible tells us. So you have this sense of the goodness of creation. But in Genesis chapter two, you have the first time that something is called not good in your whole Bible. The first time that something is not good is in Genesis chapter two and verse 18. And I want you to see it uh, together. Look at verse 18. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Do you see that? God created the world. He created Adam, the man, and he looks at man by himself and says, this is not good. Now, aloneness is actually a theme in Genesis chapter two, because back in Genesis chapter two and verse five, it says that there were no shrubs on the earth. Uh, so you have the earth alone without shrubs. 
It says there were plants, but the plants had not sprouted. So the plants are alone without sprouts. Then God creates the man, puts him in the garden to work the ground, but then the man is alone. So alone, alone, alone. The earth is alone. The plants are alone. Now the man is alone. And God says, that is not good. I want you to know to be alone is not good. God created you for relationships. God made you to be with others. And I think that he has done that for at least three reasons. First of all, we're made in his image. And as those who bear the image of God, we bear the image of a God who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so to image him rightly, we are to be in relationship. I believe, secondly, that he says it's not good for us to be alone because, as I just said, he knows that to be alone is to be vulnerable to attack. There is protection in the pack. And he knows, Satan knows, that if he can get us off by ourselves, if he can get us to withdraw, to isolate, then we're more vulnerable to attack than if we are with others. Now, we're going to see in Genesis 3, even with Adam and Eve together, they are still vulnerable to attack. But if you're on your own, you're especially so. And then third, I think that God says it's not good for us to be alone because I believe that we are not able to be all that God has called us to be by ourselves. God actually wants us to to make us look like Christ, but we need help from other people to be able to do that. We can't become all that God wants us to be by ourselves. We need a community of people to help us as we're shaped into Christ's image more and more. That that is ultimately why we have the church, because God knows that we need help to look more like Jesus. I cannot look like Jesus all by myself. You, You can think about the church as a kind of laboratory where we get to practice the one another's of the Bible. Think about all the one another's of the Bible. Love one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens, Uh, forgive one another. How can you practice the one another's of the Bible by yourself? You need other believers in order to do that. And so that's why God gives the church so that we can practice the one another, so that we can do all he's called us to do, so that we can grow into greater and greater likeness to his son. So a good helpful phrase to repeat to yourself frequently is, I need others. Can we say that together? I need others others. It is not good for man to be alone. It's why the wisest man on earth, Solomon, wrote these words in the book of Ecclesiastes. Listen to Ecclesiastes 4 verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. And also, if if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. All right, now, I want to illustrate that, but I'm going to need a volunteer to do that, okay? I need the strongest person in the room. Your hand up was up first, so come join me up here on the stage. I promise I won't embarrass you, but it may humiliate you, okay? All right, come on up. Thank you for being so willing. Nobody in the eight o'clock service wanted to help with this at all. Okay, so I don't have a handheld mic, but just kind of lean in here and tell everybody your name. Brady. Brady. But that sounded manly. 
Yeah, you've got a, a voice for radio. So that, that was, and teaching. Okay, great. All right, so what do we have here? Just tell everybody. Firewood. Firewood. Stick. It's a stick. It's from the A-Bear's backyard, actually. It's just a, a stick. Okay, so I want, Brady, if you will, just break that stick in half. Okay, was that easy or difficult? Pretty easy. Pretty easy. All right, can you double that up and break it again? How easy was that? Easy. Easy. Okay, all right. Let's see if you can double it up, break it again. Ooh, Brady is strong. All right. All right, was that easy? A little harder. A little harder. Okay, all right. Let's double that up again. So we're like eight small sticks now. Okay, here, I'll take that. Yep. You can do it. Ooh. That's impressive, actually. The guy at 8 o'clock couldn't do that. So, <laughs> all right, now we've got a fistful of sticks. Can't, you don't even want to give it a shot? I could try it. You want to try it? Let's try it. I'm sorry. It's okay. We'll vacuum. Yeah. No, nope. Okay, all right. Can we give Brady a hand? That was actually very impressive. Thank you. You got your workout done for the day. All right, do you see... Do you see the point of Ecclesiastes there that by yourself, that you're weaker than when you're with another? And so we're not meant to be alone. Aloneness is not good. And so here's the thing. I want you to see what happens in Genesis chapter 2. God provides for our aloneness. And I'm thankful that he does. He made us for relationships, but he actually provides relationships for us. Now, let me tell you a couple of ways he does that. First of all, he does that with the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. He gives us brothers and sisters. He gives us a church family so that we're not ever on our own. And that's one of the ways that we can celebrate the fact that God provides to meet us in that point of aloneness. And if you're alone today, let me just encourage you to develop relationships with other believers in Christ. It's why we gather. We don't just gather to worship together. One of the big words we use here, we say we want you to worship, connect, and serve. We want you to worship, yes, but we also want you to connect in meaningful Christian relationships with other believers. It's so important because we are stronger, we are better together. So the church is one of the ways that God provides for our aloneness. But Genesis chapter 2 is about something else. Genesis chapter 2 is about how God provides marriage as uh, a solution for our aloneness. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And this is actually important, whether you're single or you're married. Uh, I love the way that Sam Alberry puts it. He says that uh, as a single person, I have a stake in the health of the marriages in my church family. Would you agree with that statement? We want good, strong, healthy marriages. And those who are married have a stake in the health of my singleness. Isn't that good? So whether you're married or single, you ought to care about marriage and you ought to care about singleness and you ought to help your brothers and sisters, whether you're married or single, to be all that God has called them to be in those particular relationships. We're going to focus though on the creation of the first marriage and show how God uses that to provide a solution for man's aloneness. But I would say, even if you're not married and even if you never get married, this text still is applicable to you. So the first thing I want you to notice that happens in this text is simply divine provision. God looks at the aloneness of man. He says, this is not good. And he's going to provide a companion for Adam. Let's look at verses 18 through 23. It says, the Lord God said, verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. 
So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the, for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And then the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, finally, it's literally what it says in Hebrew. He's made all these animals, no helper still found that was corresponding to him. So he says, at last, finally, this one is bone of my bone. This one is flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. So I want you just to notice here the, the, the idea of divine provision, divine provision. God looks at man. He says, man is alone. That's not good. So I'm going to provide to meet that need. Divine provision is actually a theme uh, in these first couple of chapters in Genesis. In Genesis chapter one, for instance, God provides everything that is needed for life on earth. In chapter two, in verse five, I told you that there, there's the earth that's alone without shrubs and plants that are alone without sprouts. And so God provides mist uh, for the shrubs to grow. And then he provides man to work the ground so that plants can sprout. And then he creates man. He says, man is alone. And, but then he provides companions for Adam. He creates, all of, he creates a whole zoo full of animals to try to help Adam, but none, none of them are sufficient. And so he finally creates Eve. So you can trace all of that and just see that as a reversal of the aloneness that we see in Genesis chapter two. In other words, God looks and he says, aloneness is not good. So I will provide exactly what is needed most to fill this need. I want you to notice a couple of things about that. First of all, I want you just to see something about God's character as, as a provider. Look at the initiative of God in Genesis chapter two. Just trace his activity. Verse four, God made. Verse seven, God formed the man. God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. Verse eight, God planted a garden and God placed the man. Uh, verse nine, God caused to grow out of the ground every tree. Verse 15, God took the man. God placed him in the garden. Verse 16, God commanded. Verse 18, God said. Verse 19, God formed and God brought. Verse 21, God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and God took one of his ribs. Verse 22, God made the rib into a woman and God brought her to the man. So who's the subject of the activity of Genesis chapter two? God. Yes. It's, he's actually the subject of the whole Bible. The Bible beginning to end is about him. It's not ultimately about us, although it has implications for us. The subject of the Bible is God himself. And here you see the initiative that God takes to provide for man's need. Now that speaks to each and every one of us, whether you're married or you're single, because what you see here with God is that God is not distant. God is not removed from man's need. God isn't sort of like a distant observer that looks at the need of man and sort of stays back. And sometimes we think about God that way. We go through a particular problem in our life or a particular struggle and we say, where is God in all of this? 
Maybe you watch the news and you see what's happening in Israel right now and you, you get mad. Where is God in all of this? Maybe it's much more personal to you. Maybe you're going through a difficulty in your marriage or with one of your children or maybe a, a tough time at your office or there's a, a personal struggle that you're walking through and you just wonder, has God forgotten about me? Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but I know that probably all of us in this room have felt that way at particular points in our life, that maybe God has left us alone. We can feel that way from time to time, but, but look at Genesis 2. Genesis 2 says that God is not distant. God is not removed from our problems. He isn't a distant observer. He's an active initiator. He sees our lack. He sees our need. He sees our aloneness. He sees our insufficiencies. And God gets elbow deep in our problems. Are you thankful for a God like that? Who doesn't just watch us like, uh, you know, the clockmaker that starts the clock and just lets it wind out and doesn't ever get involved again. God is, the theological word is that he, he is imminent. He is transcendent. Yes, that means he's above us. He's big. He's far away. His throne is in heaven. But he is also imminent. Imminent means he is nearby. He's close. It's what the incarnation is all about. God moving into the neighborhood. God getting close to us in our problems. Listen, your problems don't deter God from you. Whatever you're walking through in your life, you may think God is not interested. That doesn't put God off. God runs to us in our weakness. He runs to us in our brokenness. He runs to us in our problems. He gets elbow deep in mankind's need here, in resolving the problem, in meeting the need, in providing for the insufficiency and taking care of us. He is present. He is near and he provides. Now, look at the nature of the companion here that God provides. Look at what he provides specifically for Adam. He creates all these animals, right? There's no helper for him, so he creates giraffe. A giraffe is good. A giraffe can help him reach the tops of the trees, but that's not enough. So he creates elephant, and elephants are good. They can carry heavy loads. They can break sticks into pieces. They can do all kinds of things, and that's great, but that's not enough. Uh, he, he creates dogs. Dogs are wonderful. I'm a dog person. I love dogs, but dogs are not enough. He creates lions. Lions are wonderful. They can help guard the garden. You know, they, 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 you can ride them around and they're great, but they're not enough. And so God looks at, after all of these animals that he's created, he said, still, there's no helper corresponding to him. So he creates the first woman. Now, I think it's interesting. When God creates the animals, the animal starts to name them like a dictionary. He creates the woman. The man breaks out into poetry. Bone of bones, flesh of flesh. At last, Woman, come from man. I want you to notice the nature of this companion. Now, let's just talk about the woman, Eve. There's three ways that she's described here in these verses. First of all, notice that she's described as a helper in verse 18. <clears throat> helper. Some of you have a translation that says, help meet. Now, sometimes we read that verse and we think of helper as being almost a... Uh, a, demean, a demeaning term, almost like a sidekick. You know, like Adam was kind of the main event, like Batman, but he needed a little helper. You know, he needed a sidekick like Robin, and so he creates Eve. And so we create, sometimes in, sometimes in the church, we can almost make women a second-class citizen. I think that's a huge mistake. And I think it's especially a huge mistake to draw that implication from this word, because this word helper does not mean sidekick. In fact, the word is used 21 times in the, New Test in, in the Old Testament. 
15 of the 21 times this word is used, it's used to describe God. Such as in Psalm 70 and verse 5, which says, I am poor and needy, you are my help. There it is. And my deliverer, O Lord. So helper, don't, don't think about helper as sort of a sidekick, a second-class citizen. Think about a helper as someone with, with great importance. Uh, the, the helper here is, is describing someone who would provide what the man lacked, who would do what the man can't do, who would supplement the man's weaknesses. Someone has said that the woman would make it possible for man to do what he could never do alone. And likewise for the woman. Something very good would fill man's aloneness. There's a lot of truth in that statement. You know, just in my own marriage, Amy supplements so many of my weaknesses. You would not want me to be your pastor if it wasn't for Amy. Lanny, can we get a witness to that, right? I would have had no, there's no way that y'all would even have taken a look at me without Amy. It was like, Andrew's okay. He's fine. We'll put up with him. But Amy, now she's great. You wouldn't want me without Amy. I would be grumpy. I'd be short-tempered. I'd be impatient. She just supplements so many of my weaknesses. And I think that I supplement some of her weaknesses that we won't talk about, okay? <laughs> but, but that's how this is supposed to work. By the way, that's true in the body of Christ, isn't it? Whether you're married or single, God creates us to help one another, to supplement one another's weaknesses. We need help, right? We need others. So God brings people around you to help supplement those weaknesses. But second of all, notice that this woman was a helper. The next phrase there in verse 18 is corresponding to him. Now, that's an interesting phrase. She was corresponding to him. Literally, literally it means she was a helper opposite him opposite him. You could translate that as she was a helper who was a complement, C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T, a complement to him, or a, even better, a counterpart to him. Alan Ross says it means that the woman would share the man's nature. That is, whatever the man received at creation, she too would have. In support of this view, we may recall that Genesis 1.27 makes it clear that the image of God is male and female. The man and the woman thus corresponded physically, socially, and spiritually. What he lacked, she supplied. And it would be safe to say that what she lacked, he supplied. For life in common requires mutual help. That means that fundamentally men and women are equal in worth and value. Can we say amen to that? Notice, by the way, the woman's value and worth is on her own merit, not Nothing attached here to her ability to have children. She will have children later, but there's nothing said about that. This is just on her own merit. The man is not created to be superior to the woman. The woman is not man's inferior. She is man's corresponding counterpart. And so let me just talk, stop for a moment and talk about men and women in the church because, you know, the whole idea of gender is very relevant in our society today. Um, you have people who say that gender is, is just a social construct and you can just invent as many genders as you want. Uh, there are others who try to focus on the differences in gender, some who focus on the similarities in gender. You've got a feminist movement that, uh, frankly, tries to push men down. You have misogyny 
that tries to push women down. So kind of just depending on what corner of society you look, men are devalued or women are devalued. And all kinds of confusion has been created between man and woman. So what is God's design? Well, God has created us to be, to share some things in common and to have some things that are different. And we are both different in some ways and the same in other ways. Men and women are different in, certainly in the way they look. We are different in our roles and our functions. You see this as you read the rest of the Bible, that men and women have different roles and responsibilities, whether it's in the home or in the church. So I believe that in all of those differences, uh, I am what is called a complementarian. That means that I believe that the role of the husband and the role of the wife are complementary to one another. The role of men and women complement one another. And I believe that God's word teaches that men are to lead their wives. They're to be the spiritual leader in their home. I believe that God calls men to be pastors in the church. I believe all of those things that make us different. But sometimes in our particular uh, tribe, in the evangelical church, we focus on those differences so much that we neglect the things that, that we have in common. And frankly, a lot of times when we talk about men and women in the church, let me just be blunt. Can I be blunt? I'll try to be blunt with grace, okay? But let me just be direct. Oftentimes when people talk about the differences between men and women in the church, 98% of the conversation in the conservative evangelical church is on what women can't do. And that's really not the emphasis in Scripture. I believe there are limitations for all of us, whether you're a man or a woman. There's certain limitations we all experience. But the Scripture is a wealth of information about all that men and women can do, about the worth and the dignity and the value of both men and women. And Genesis chapter 2 is a beautiful example of that, where you see not just the differences between the husband and the wife, the man and the woman, but also the samenesses, the likenesses. I mean, we are different in a lot of ways, but there are also a lot of things that make us the same. We're both made in God's image. We're both commissioned by God to rule over the earth. We're both made for relationship with God. In the New Testament, we can both be redeemed children of God. We're both entrusted with the Great Commission. We both have ministry callings and giftings and responsibilities. We will both reign with Christ. And folks, what that does is it actually elevates the dignity of both men and women. We need men in the church, amen? And we need women in the church. We need mothers and fathers. We need spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers. Both are needed. And the Christian ethic driven by scripture is not to push down either one of those genders, but actually to recognize and appreciate both the differences and the samenesses and the common dignity that is shared by both men and women in the church. Elise Fitzpatrick puts it this way in her book, Worthy. She said that in thinking about women and men, we should imitate God's thoughts. We, when we speak about women and men, we should imitate God's word. God begins with what we have in common, a shared name, a shared nature, and a shared mission. Likewise, we should emphasize what we have in common. We share a human nature and a divine mission. We are more alike than we are different. So women should be treated with the same dignity and respect as men, for both are made of the same flesh. All misogyny or hatred of women is the hatred of man, for both share the same nature and name. I hope that we would be a place that champions godly men. 
because we need godly men in the church. And I hope that we would be a place that celebrates godly women because we need godly women in the church. And the Bible holds up both man and woman and says they are distinct, they are different, but they share a lot in common. They're both important and they both have equal dignity, worth, and value. Amen? So this is the third thing that's said about the woman. She is a helper. She's corresponding to him. But look, she's made here in the text out of a rib. Uh, you see that in verses, uh, verse 22 and verse uh, 21, God takes a rib and makes the woman. Now, I just want to read one quote that I think is beautiful that describes why, why a rib? What, what's the deal about a rib? Why does she come from the rib? Well, rib literally means side. Uh, God takes part of his, the man's side and makes it into a woman. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. He says, she was not made of his head to top him or his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful description of the relationship here between the man and the woman. Now, God puts them together and he creates the first marriage. <clears throat> That's what he provides. He says, aloneness is not good, so I'm gonna provide marriage as a solution to the aloneness of, of Adam. But then I want you to, just the last thing I want you to see in the text is that God gives a purpose to this marriage. There's a divine purpose to marriage. Now, when I do premarital counseling with couples, I'll, also, I'll often ask them, why are you getting married? Why not just be friends? Why not just, you know, date uh, or, or just be friends? Uh, I want them to think about what's the reason I'm getting married? What's the purpose for my marriage? And a lot of times uh, I would say half the time, sometimes more than half, half the time, somebody will say, well, because she makes me happy. And I say, that is wonderful that she makes you happy. That is a terrible reason to get married because she won't always make you happy and you won't always make her happy. You've got to have a bigger, better purpose for your marriage. I believe that the purpose of marriage, as in all things, is for the glory of God and for the Christ-likeness of us. The reason that God gives us marriage is that he uses marriage as a tool to make us more like Christ. He can also use, by the way, singleness as a tool to make us more like Christ if he's called you to that. But if he's called you to marriage, the reason you get married is not because we were made for each other or you complete me or she makes me happy. Okay, all of that's cute and sweet for the first week. Okay, but then real life happens. You gotta have an, a, a more abiding purpose for your marriage. And we actually get a glimpse of it right here in the last two verses of this chapter. Look at verses 24 and 25. It says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. And both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. So there's two things that are happening in these two verses. And I just wanna talk about them as they relate to marriage. But then I wanna point you to one other thing, a greater reality that they point towards. Okay, notice the word leaving, just in the margin, write out leaving. And then I want you to write the word weaving, W-E-A-V-I-N-G, leaving and weaving. Those are two sides of a marriage coin, okay? It's part of how we do marriage well. We have to leave and we have to weave. 
Now, leaving, notice that right there in verse 24. This is the reason a man leaves his father and mother. The first thing you need to do when you get married is you need to move out of your mom and dad's house. That's good advice, right, parents? Get out of here, you know? We've had you for years, now go. What's leaving in father and mother about? Well, it just simply means that once you get married, the husband and the wife have a new primary loyalty. The new primary loyalty is to one another instead of mom and dad. There's a sense in which you're, uh, as one person has put it, your first obligation and your first loyalty now is to your wife. So you can't call mom every day anymore. Uh, if you're used to turning to your dad for advice before every decision, you, you should stop that. Don't turn to dad for advice every time you make a decision. Uh, if you're used to going on three nights a week of guy's night or girl's night, that's got to end once you get married. Can we say yes to that? Amen. Is that a good practical piece of advice? There's got to be a leaving behind of other relationships so that you can prioritize this new relationship with your wife. This, this new commitment is the most important commitment you have. That's true for all married people in the house today. This now is the most important human relationship that you have. It's why I make no excuses to, for my kids when they say, oh, you're going out on another date night. You bet we are, because mama comes first. There's gotta be a leaving behind. And then there's got to be a weaving. You leave behind mom and dad, you leave behind in some sense these other relationships in order to prioritize the marriage, prioritize your commitment to your spouse. But then there's a weaving, and that speaks of the union that happens in marriage. There's three phrases here in verses 24 and 25 that reiterate this. Verse 24, you leave father and mother and bond, bond with his wife. Verse 24, they become one flesh. Verse 25, they're naked and without shame. Now, there's a picture there of emotional, relational, intellectual, spiritual, physical union that happens in marriage. You begin to weave your lives into a beautiful friendship that is intimate and close. Think about the language there. One flesh, that means two have become one. Naked and without shame. There's a picture there of the vulnerability and transparency that begins to happen in marriage. Think about the phrase bonds, bonds with his wife. That means to be united with his wife. The Andrew Standard Version is translated this way. Be super glued to your wife. Okay, leave mom and dad and be super glued to your wife. Have you ever been to Home Depot and you get a piece of plywood and you'll see there are multiple individual sheets of wood that have been super glued together. They've been bonded. They've been united together. That's part of what you do in marriage. There's a leaving behind. And then that spouse becomes the closest personal relationship that you have. I love the way Kent Hughes describes it. He says that this one flesh, like two have now become one, expresses deepest intimacy. Everything is shared. Everything is shared. Now, that's how God created the husband and the wife to enjoy marriage. That this would be a, a friendship. This would be one that where they're close and they, they've, they've prioritized the relationship, but they've experienced a union with one another uh, in marriage. But marriage is not, listen, marriage is not an end unto itself. Marriage is not an end unto itself. The reason that God created marriage, the reason that we have marriage the purpose of marriage, you could say, 
is to reflect and picture the gospel. Paul in Ephesians 5 talks about marriage this way. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, follow your husbands, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. He says, there's something about the relationship of Christ and the church that points you towards something about marriage. And then there's something about marriage that points you to something about Christ and the church. My my, uh, daughters love snow globes. Anytime I I travel and I'm in a large city, I like to get a, a, a... snow globe of that city. You know, I've been to Dubai. It's got the tallest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa. And I can literally bottle that up into a snow globe and bring it home to my daughters. And they can see a picture of Dubai in miniature. Now, I believe that that's the reason that God gives us this human relationship called marriage. It is like a bottled up picture of the gospel in miniature. You can see in a snapshot, you can see in a small picture, in a human relationship, uh, it's like a signpost that points you to a much greater reality. It's like a picture of the gospel in miniature form, like many other human relationships. Another one of those relationships is the relationship of like adoption. Adoption, what a beautiful picture of a, a parent who brings in a child into their home and they become family. You know, that's a, that's a beautiful picture of the good news of Jesus, that, that he is our older brother who takes us to the father's house. We are adopted children of God. That's a wonderful human relationship that points you to a much greater reality. Folks, marriage is the same way. It is a human relationship that is ultimately designed to reflect and point to the most important relationship that any one of us will have. For instance, in leaving, we get to picture the commitment of a bridegroom to a bride over and against all others. That points us forward to a greater reality about another bridegroom who would leave his heavenly home and come for his bride and prioritize her above all others. It's the way the Bible even speaks about our relationship with God. Isaiah 62 in verse 5, as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Do you realize that in your marriage, you get to picture that great reality? You get to picture the reality of a bridegroom who prioritizes a bride. And even if you in your marriage maybe are going through difficulties, do you realize that even, even in a hard marriage, it's still a portrait, it's still a portrayal, it's still a picture of another kind of marriage the covenant love of a God who redeems a bride. It's interesting, the word bond is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe Israel's covenant relationship with Yahweh, bonded. Marriage is a picture of that in leaving. Marriage is a picture of the gospel also in weaving. When you think about a husband and a wife who become united to one another, folks, this points us forward to a greater reality that those who were far from God can be brought near by the blood of Christ. That those who were once separated from him can be brought into union with Christ. That that we can have intimacy and closeness with Christ. Marriage is like a, it is like a foretaste that is intended to point you forward to the gospel. That's the purpose of marriage. Tim and Kathy Keller express that beautifully in their book, The Meaning of Marriage. I want to read you this quote, and then we're going to be done this morning. Listen listen to what they say. 
They say that what husbands should do for their wives is what Jesus did to bring us into union with himself. And what was that? God gave himself up for us. Jesus, the Son, though equal with the Father, gave up his glory and took on our human nature. But further, he willingly went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins, removing our guilt and condemnation so that we could be united with him and take on his nature. He gave up his glory and power and became a servant. He died to his own interests and looked to our needs and interests instead. Jesus' sacrificial service to us has brought us into a deep union with him and he with us. And that is the key, not only to understanding marriage, but to living it. If God had the gospel of Jesus' salvation in mind when he established marriage, then marriage only works to the degree that approximates the pattern of self-giving love in Christ. What Paul is saying not only answers the objection that marriage is oppressive and restrictive, but it also addresses the sense that the demands of marriage are overwhelming. There is so much to do that we don't know where to start. Start here, Paul says. Do for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus, and the rest will follow. That's the purpose of marriage, to point to the gospel. And this first marriage, right even here in Genesis chapter 2, pictures a gospel that would be unveiled through the rest of the Bible, a bridegroom who leaves home for the bride, a God who loves us so much that even though we're separated by our sin, through the reconciling work of Christ on the cross and in the resurrection, those who are separated can be united to him. This marriage, by the way, ultimately would provide the framework for God's plan of redemption that would come through a family with the seed of Eve. It would be God's plan for dealing with the shame that would enter the world in Genesis chapter 3. In chapter 2 and verse 25, they're naked and yet no shame. Genesis chapter 3, shame enters. But it's going to be because of a bridegroom who loves a bride that the shame can be renewed, uh, removed in the gospel. That's the purpose of marriage. Amen? So let me ask you as we close this morning. You, you were made for relationship. If you are married or single... You need others. If God has given you a marriage to address your aloneness, then seek to display the truth of the gospel in your home with your spouse. If you're single, you still need others. And God gives us the community called the church to address our aloneness. The most important relationship you can have is a relationship with the God who made you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you were not made to be alone. God wants a relationship. He wants a friendship with you. He wants to be united to you. And we'd love to help you understand how to have that relationship today. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And as people stream out of this room, there will be a couple of prayer partners who will be staying around. And you can come forward. This is your invitation to trust Christ today, to be united to God they can talk with you about how to do that. Let's bow together and pray. Lord, we are thankful that you have made us for yourself. You have made us for community. We're thankful that you provide for our aloneness, whether through relationships in the church or the relationship of marriage. Lord, help us to be faithful in all of the relationships that you've entrusted to us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who doesn't know Jesus, 
that they would be united to you through him. And we pray in his name, amen.